Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Amazon debuted its new TV series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, this week. And the show looks, well, epic. Evil does not sleep. It wakes. Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow, to bury us all beneath the mountain. You can see just how much time and attention to detail was spent on it, even in the trailer. There are massive battle scenes, incredible costumes, and stunning landscapes. You have been told many lies of Middle-earth. And there's a very good reason why this show looks so good. It was extremely expensive to make. So if you look at the two seasons that are planned for this so far, that's a, that's a billion-dollar show, which I, I believe is a first. That's Chris Grimes. He's the FT's Los Angeles bureau chief and covers all things Hollywood. Chris recently wrote about how Amazon isn't the only streaming service spending money like crazy on their programming. The new Game of Thrones season has just started on HBO Max, and that's a you know that's a two hundred million dollar season for for that show, and and on and on. Disney's got a lot of big stuff coming out. The Star Wars Andor series is coming out this this autumn, so it's going to be a big big moment for consumers. It's frankly extravagant budgets, uh, uh, which is kind of amazing. But Chris says these boom times for show budgets may not last. Theaters are producing big hits again, and a lot of streaming services aren't even getting enough subscribers to make a profit. So now there's kind of a reevaluation of all of these things that we were, were kind of thinking of as gospel just 18 months ago in the streaming business. Today we look at how the streaming landscape is changing and what that means for the types of shows we will watch at home. Will the quirky indie rom-com survive, or will it be vanquished by flashy superhero franchises? Then we're joined by the head of Lex and our nature therapy columnist Jonathan Guthrie to talk about bees. He's crunched the numbers and figured out how much we owe bees and what we can do to repay that debt. This is FT Weekend. I'm Topher Forges, in for Lila Raptopoulos. Hi, Chris. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So you are our expert in the streaming wars, and it's been such a wild and unpredictable time. And I want to run through each company and break down what's going on with each one. But first, let's step back. How did things change for streaming broadly when the pandemic hit? So the pandemic... Horrible for humanity, but amazing for streaming. People were locked down. People had very little to do. And so they tucked in and started binging shows on streaming platforms. 
particularly Netflix. The timing was good for Disney as well because they had just launched Disney Plus, their new streaming service. And so what would have probably taken several years in a kind of normal time period just compacted lots and lots of growth for the whole industry into a couple of years. Back in the early days of the pandemic, we were all buzzing about shows like Tiger King, Ted Lasso, and The Mandalorian, and subscriptions were soaring. So platforms decided to go all in on streaming, even old school studios that had resisted it. The plan was to grow and grow fast. They dumped a ton of money into their shows and hoped that it would get them enough subscribers to eventually make a profit. And this actually created a bit of an arms race to see which platform could spend the most on its content. And now, Chris says what is coming out this fall is the result of that race. It's going to be a big, big moment for consumers. Shows that were greenlit at, during the, the moment when Wall Street was really cheering on the, this dash for growth big spending on content, big losses on investment into streaming service. And a lot of that production was disrupted because of the pandemic. It was harder to make these shows during the pandemic. So we're, we're going to see the uh, uh, releases of, of shows that were commissioned at the, you know, bubbliest moment of the streaming era. But Chris says there's a flip side to that. You know, especially after Netflix announced earlier this year that their blistering growth had gone into reverse and that they were actually losing subscribers, not gaining subscribers. That that was the moment that really changed the narrative here. And uh, now Wall Street investors are, are saying this can't continue forever. We're going to have to start seeing some money. And uh, so, you know, the companies are responding to that. Netflix, which, by the way, is profitable has said that they will do something that they said they were always never going to do, and that is introduce an advertising tier. Uh, this is, it's kind of a best of times, worst of times scenario for consumers where they're going to have all of these riches uh, this this autumn, but at the same time, they may be either, you know, facing the choice of having to watch ads while they do this or uh, pay higher prices. So let's talk about Netflix for a second. You mentioned that in order to stay profitable, they're going to introduce a subscription plan that would include ads, which, by the way, Disney is also going to do. But has Netflix said anything about the type of content it will produce to attract and keep subscribers? In a recent call with investors, uh, Ted Sarandos, who's the co-chief executive and the, and the guy who's kind of oversees the content strategy, admitted that their content in many cases just wasn't good enough, which is, I've found to be a remarkably um, forthright statement uh, during a, an investor call. Uh, so they, they say, I think they were going to make, uh, they're going to make less, uh, but they're going to try and make that content better, um, which is, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's a notoriously difficult business. Um, but, uh, you know, Netflix still, like I say, they, they're profitable. Um, they, um, still plan to spend billions of dollars. Um, I think they, they spent about 17 billion or on track to spend about 17 billion on content this year. So do you think that they're just going to direct that money to just fewer projects? Is that the idea? 
I think so, yeah. So Netflix is, uh, has done some things like recently they uh, uh, worked with the Russo brothers, who were the, uh, the, the brothers who were behind some of the biggest successes for Marvel. So the Russos uh, came in and made the gray man. Um, and I think we'll see more of that. They're uh, trying to, uh, with proven hit makers, to make a franchise out of this gray man series of books that's, uh, um, you know, that could run and run. Everybody, in fact, wants what Disney has with Marvel. Uh, over at Warner Brothers, you've got David Zasloff, the new CEO who came from Discovery. Uh, Warner Brothers has DC Comics, and he wants a DC franchise the way that Disney has with Marvel. And he says he's going to invest in that, and he's he's challenging the people at Warner to come up with a, a DC strategy that's a big hit-making strategy like that. So this is what everybody wants. Netflix wants this, and, you know, big franchises that are going to keep subscribers locked in, uh you know, for years. Right. So let's talk about HBO for a second and Warner Brothers Discovery. They made big news recently by reshuffling um, and axing some of their content. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there? Yes. So Discovery bought Warner Brothers after the um, pretty short but not very great uh, ownership of Warner Brothers by AT&T. Um, and to make this acquisition, uh, Discovery, which is a smaller company, had to take on $55 billion worth of debt. And Zaslav's got to pay that off somehow. So he's looking for ways to cut costs. And at the studio, he, he looked at Batgirl and said, you know, which is a movie that's finished and was about to be released, and, uh, and he axed it. Uh, and this is a DC movie. Um, he emphasized a few times on a call that he's willing to stand by a movie as long as it's got quality. So, you know, obviously I haven't seen it and very few people have seen Batgirl, uh, but he decided to take a write-off on it. Chris says people in Hollywood were really shocked by this move. This was a movie that Warner Brothers had already spent $90 million to make and had already started advertising. So do we have any idea of what that might mean for the types of shows that we'll be seeing on, let's say, HBO Max? You know, I think what the people that we've been talking to in recent days is, is that this push for taking over not just Warner, but across the industry means that studios are probably going to do what they've always done and go for blockbusters, big hits, you know, um, and... You know, that may mean, according to a, a professor I spoke to last week, who was saying, you know, one of the things that's made the streaming era so wonderful in a lot of ways is that there were there were quirky little shows. And he was speculating that, well, maybe we won't see as many of those things because the studios are uh, uh, going to want to attract subscribers and lock them in. And along those lines with HBO Max, which... Uh, I believe, took off during the pandemic. Now they're bringing in Discovery. Do we know if HBO's Max's days are, are numbered and they might turn into a different streaming service altogether? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of speculation about that. Of course, HBO has been, you know, consistently one of the 
you know, producers of some of the highest quality, most beloved series and shows for, for decades now. Chris is talking about shows like The Wire, The Sopranos, Band of Brothers. HBO was responsible for a new golden age of television. And Chris says now, people are nervous about what could happen to it. I mean, it seems like what we know so far is that the plan is instead of having a Discovery streaming service and an HBO streaming service, they're going to try to put these together in some kind of bundle or platform together, which, you know, would be fine. Um, I think in the darkest late night uh, worries in Hollywood, uh, you'd see HBO become more like Discovery and, and than the other way around, where uh, you have more inexpensive programming about uh, people's kitchens and their gardens or whatever. So then there are the big tech companies that are moving into this space like Apple and Amazon, and they basically have limitless resources to produce original content. So how exactly are these studios supposed to compete with their budgets? So since I've been covering this this beat, when you ask people in the industry how it's all going to work out, there's a belief that, well, there will be inevitable consolidation. So somebody's going to have to eat somebody else. There's too many players to exist a few years from now, right? So somebody's going to lose. They're going to be losers and they're going to be eaten up. And that's, but looming in the background of that is the fact that you've got really deep pocketed tech companies, Amazon, Apple, and even Google, which has YouTube, and you can subscribe to streaming through YouTube as well. So I think for the for the studios, as big as some of them are, is you know Disney's huge, Warner Brothers is a, and Paramount are these legendary Hollywood names. But you know, do they end up being part of a, te- a deep pocketed tech company at some point? That's that's always kind of in the backs of people's minds. But what what we do know is that the traditional studios can't continue to spend money the way they're spending it on streaming services that are unprofitable. So as we wrap up here, have you spoken to actual creators at any of these services? I imagine it must be stressful working in a system that is just constantly changing and no one's really sure what it's going to look like or how much money they're going to have. What are they saying? Yeah, I've, I've, this is a conversation I had, I've had with people for several months now after the Netflix shock uh, earlier this year. Now, some there's one point of view, and I think there's a lot of merit to this, which is that no matter what happens, these streaming services are going to still need um, the appetite for streaming content is, is still big. Um, and so if you're... Uh, you know, if you're a producer or if you're a writer, you there's a belief that there's still going to be need for more scripted content than there was 10 years ago, right? The, the, the demand is higher than it was, uh, thanks to streaming. The economics of that is a, is a completely different discussion. Uh, Netflix has changed, you know, the, the game in terms of uh, potential bonuses and uh, profit sharing and that kind of thing for uh, writers and producers. But putting that aside, there's an expectation that, yes, that there's still going to be a need for a lot more content than, than there was before. 
Which leads me to my last question. Are we at the peak of peak TV? The question of peak TV is a really funny one or interesting one. Uh, There's a veteran television executive named John Landgraf, who's, uh, who works for the FX network. And he's been calling the peak of peak TV for about the last five years. He did it again uh, in early August at uh, a TV critics uh, event. Basically, at some point, he's got to be right that these budgets will have to top out. This, this unlimited growth in streaming series budgets has got to, has got to top out somewhere. Um, and given the, the big change that we've seen in investor appetite to basically endless losses, that game is over now. <laughs> so I think Peak TV, if it's not this year, um, it's coming. All right. Chris Grimes, thank you so much. And for our next segment, you'll hear an interview from Lila about bees. My colleague Jonathan Guthrie had this nightmare recently that really freaked him out. So here's what happens. A debt collector knocks at his front door, demanding nearly $160 billion. That's the stuff bad dreams are made of. But the other horrifying detail is that this debt collector is not human. So this rather angry bee that turns up on my doorstep starts off (laughs) trying to get me to pay the whole whack. So the reason this bee is hitting Jonathan up for so much money is because that's how much it thinks we humans owe it. And then in the end, it it settles um, after threatening me with its friend, Mrs. Hornet, um, for me to pay for my household alone, which I decide is actually pretty good value. If you think think about it, what you pay for Netflix. (laughs) What is it? It's 87 pounds a year? Yeah, Yeah. something like that. Exactly so. You know, for a little bit more, you can have life on Earth continuing uh, in a a reasonably organized kind of way. Seems like a pretty good deal. Jonathan is head of the Lex column, which gives financial commentary at the FT. But he also has his own nature therapy column for FT Weekend. And recently, he wrote a piece that brought these worlds together about the debt we owe bees. Bees have been going through it for a while. Their population is declining rapidly, which is bad because they pollinate one of every four bites of food we eat. And Jonathan wanted to really calculate how much we owe them. Putting a value on things we don't pay for has a name. It's called natural capital. So we're all familiar with financial capital, the kind that sits on company and bank balance sheets. And that's kind of easy to assess because you can count it up in dollars or pounds or yen or whatever. Natural capital is a bit different because it's an attempt to place monetary value on the environment around us, on the organisms that live there, and on which we're absolutely dependent as a species. Jonathan says that often we think of environmental issues as something called externalities. It means basically costs we don't have to pay. If, for example, you poison a lot of bees with your chemical works, um, the cost doesn't fall on you directly. It actually fall, you, you might think it falls on nobody. It just falls on the bees. But they're not externalities. And people are starting to realize that we do ultimately have to pay a tangible price. Jonathan, are there other examples of externalities? Like, Well, it used to be climate change, didn't it? And 
that's sort of not an externality anymore, is it? Yeah. Climate change, of course, has crossed over from being an externality to one that's imposing very high costs on human beings of a real and, you know, individual human and financial kind. And in the case of bees, it's that if you let them all die, or indeed you kill a lot of them, um, there's nothing around to pollinate all the plants that you need, not just the flowers and, right. and you know, the beautiful environment that we have around us in unspoiled places, but also important food crops too. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how one comes up with a numerical value for nature, for things like this? I mean, there are different ways that you can look at it. The, the number that I quoted was essentially a figure derived from the loss of crop productivity right. if um, bees weren't there anymore. And there are, the, there are some crops that are, for example, pollinated just by the wind, um, blowing pollen around. And there are other ones that are pollinated by different kinds of organisms. But um, that was the starting point of the research I was quoting. There are other ways of looking at it as well. I mean, some people um, talk about essentially the total value of uh, crops that would be lost. I mean, in a sense, you're understating it because those that's just food that human beings eat. Right. Um, the whole of the natural world is, is interdependent. So large forests have particular roles to play. Some of those plants are also pollinated by bees, and everything tends to interlock. Right. I think the point about it is it's really an attempt to illustrate the very high value of, of nature if we see it not as an externality, but something that we actually had to pay for. Could you briefly explain for listeners who don't know, like what the threat is to bees these days, why, they're, why the populations are declining? It's very complicated, and I'm a f and and it seems to be multifactorial. There seem to be a lot of factors at play. One of these is something called um, colony collapse syndrome, which is simply a tendency of bees, worker bees. These are to wander off and stop doing their jobs. And in the piece, I kind of talk about whether they're sort of unionizing and rebelling <laughs> against the queen who's who's telling them what to do. It, it, obviously, that's not the real reason. Um, it may be because there's not enough food around mm. and they start starving and that disrupts their behavior. They can't find enough patches of flowers. And what, what they need really is is flowering plants to flowering throughout the season. And I'm talking particularly here about wild bees and bumblebees, so that they can sustain a colony throughout its cycle during during the year. And if you have relatively few flowers, lots and lots of herbicides, for example, which uh, um, you get around monocultures, mono lots of pesticides like neonicotinoids, then you're killing the plants often that the bees feed on, and you're also killing the bees themselves. That seems to contribute to the problem, but there may be other things as well. Yeah. But I think what you come down to is that they're trying to tell us something unwittingly, that there's something really seriously wrong with the balance in nature and the balance between human beings and nature. What do you love about bees? A bee is just an amazing organism uh, because she can do so many different things. This tiny animal, she's a gatherer, 
She's an aviator. She can fly fast in straight lines for actually quite long distances, given her size. She can then dot like a skilled helicopter pilot between lots and lots of different flowers on a flower head. She's a soldier because she can defend her colony if she needs to with her sting. She's also a builder and she makes beautiful hexagonal cells. And she's a caro because she looks after all her sisters and brothers in the colony. Hmm. And all of this in just a few weeks, generally, that, that the worker bee lives for. So this is an amazing multi-purpose animal. So there are a few things you can do to save bees. One of them is individual. If you've got a balcony or a garden, you can plant the kind of flowers that they like, which are typically blue, single blooms, and um, also have a bit of a succession through the year. And I think it's good for us to see them flying about and doing their, their jobs as brilliantly as they do, um, as yeah. well as good for them. If you're feeling extra ambitious, you could get involved politically. I think we should be lobbying. We should be lobbying politicians and lawmakers to try and encourage biodiversity more, to try and change agricultural practices. Mm -hmm. I think we should be talking to farmers and farmers' groups and, and understanding where they're coming from. They've really been told in the Western Hemisphere since the, really the, the Second World War and during that, that conflict that their aim is to produce as much food as they possibly can on as little land as possible. Right. And understandably, they don't always like the idea of a more biodiverse countryside, but I, I think we need to understand them and, and persuade them. And Jonathan thinks that's worth it, because if we actually organized ourselves more sensibly, we wouldn't need to be doing things like creating fake bees to replace the real ones. It just seems to me something that makes me want to hold my head in my hands. So, for example, researchers at Harvard who are trying to make an artificial bee that will fly around and pollinate plants um, there are some other technologists who uh, have a system where you have little machines that zoom about puffing air at plants um, to try and blow uh, pollen from one flower to another. This is quite literally a Black Mirror episode. Absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> crazy. And you just think, why, why? You know, why spend money on this? You're actually paying human beings to do something that a tiny animal can do about a hundred times better for nothing, <laughs> right, literally. Right, right, right. All of this made me wonder what else we should be quantifying. You said that you've been covering pages of your notebooks with numbers. Yes. Trying to quantify natural capital. Yeah. Well, I'd probably like to do some more on carbon. I think carbon's really important. And yeah. I think the thing about the carbon burden of various different activities is it's reasonably quantifiable. And it's also quite a sensible proxy for money. Money and carbon are quite interchangeable. I've done quite a lot of calculations on trees, which yeah. interest me a lot. I um, came to the conclusion that you'd have to cover a land, a, a flat land surface about the same size as Norway, which has, got, of course, got lots of mountains and fjords on it, to grow enough trees to offset the yearly emissions from the airline industry. Do you have a lot of bees, Jonathan, in your backyard? Yeah, I, I'm not doing too badly at the moment. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I mean, I have a 
a sort of rather untidy garden that has quite a lot of natural plants in it. And it's actually been a reasonable year for them. And we've seen quite a lot of honeybees. So there's, there are obviously local beekeepers who are keeping their colonies going in South London. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of wild bees around at the moment as well, at least decent numbers of them, I'd say. Yeah. So uh, I'm reasonably hopeful. Jonathan, this was um, really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Lila. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you want to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. And the show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital sub and a great deal on FT Weekend in print. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Topher Forges, and here's my team. Katia Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Giovinco with original music by Metaphor Music. And special thanks to Cheryl Brumley. Lila Raptopoulos will be back next week. Have a wonderful weekend. See you soon. <laughs>